And let me begin, as those are being passed out, by reading the words of Psalm 1. That's not where the sermon will come from, but it will prepare our minds, I believe. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that life and death is at stake in how we relate to your word. The one who meditates on it day and night is like a tree planted by water and bears fruit constantly and does not wither up. But the one who is wicked, who is not meditating on your word, will shrivel up and dry up and be cast into the fire and be destroyed. So, Lord, teach us the seriousness tonight of of loving your revelation of yourself, particularly your revelation of yourself in your written word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To give a little introduction, uh, this is our third sermon in a series on the topic of what I've called systematic theology, which is a big term, but we saw in the first sermon... That theology is simply a word that means the study of God. And systematic means to do something in orderly fashion. So systematic theology would be an orderly discussion or study of God. And we talked about why studying theology or doctrine, teachings about God and and, uh, what He declares are important. But we had to ask the question then, if we're going to study God... How is it that we can have knowledge of God? Where do we go to find out who God is, what He does, and what He's like? And the answer to that question was the word revelation. God must reveal to us Himself. He tells us who He is. He tells us what He is like. And if God doesn't reveal Himself, then we can't know Him. So revelation is God's self-disclosure, His communication, manifestation of Himself to us. And I broke down for you revelation into two categories, general revelation and special revelation. And I said that general revelation was the, the way that God communicates Himself, especially His existence, His character, and His moral law, to all humans at all times and in all places through natural creation and the makeup of the human creature. So through the way we're made up with our consciences that convict us of sin and the the way that God has made the heavens and the earth show us something about the fact that God exists and His divine attributes and His power and His moral law. The problem, we said, is... One, creation is under a curse. So we have things in in creation now like death. And we have to wonder, what does that reveal to us about God? But most of all, what is wrong with God revealing Himself through nature isn't that God has done anything wrong, and it's not that natural revelation is insufficient. It's that our hearts are fallen. And because we are sinful, fallen creatures... 
as Romans 1 says, we reject what God has revealed Himself in creation and we choose to worship the the creature rather than the Creator. And so God needs to speak to us in a more specific and clear and effective way that overcomes our fallenness. And of course that happens, as we, as we said this morning, that requires us to be born again. We need to have new hearts. But we turn to this subject of special revelation, which is sometimes called particular revelation. When I talked about general revelation, I said this is a revelation of God in nature that's revealed in general. Everyone who exists on the earth has access to it because creation is revealing God. So it's revealed universally, it's revealed in general. Special revelation is God's revelation in special ways or to particular people at particular places at particular times. In his excellent book, Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem defines special revelation as God's manifestation of himself to particular persons at definite times and places, enabling those persons to enter into a redemptive relationship with Himself. And he goes on to explain that this refers to God's words addressed to specific people, such as the words of the Bible, the words of Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles, the words of God spoken in personal address, such as at Mount Sinai or at the baptism of Jesus, And special revelation includes all the words of Scripture, but it's not limited to the words of Scripture. So this book, the Bible, is special revelation. But when Jesus stood on earth and He spoke to people, He was God speaking directly to people. And we don't have all of His words recorded, but that would count as special revelation too. Well, what can we say about God's special revelation? First of all, it is necessary for life and for salvation. What do we see in Genesis 1? What is the first thing that God does? He speaks. When there was nothing, God spoke, and then there was something. And then when He creates Adam and He puts him in the garden, God speaks to him. And His words to Adam will be Adam's life if Adam will obey them. And then when Adam and Eve fall and they're kicked out of the garden, God speaks And he gives them what's sometimes called the proto-gospel, the first gospel, when he says, I'm going to send the seed of the woman and she's going to crush the head of the serpent. He gives them the promise of salvation. And so we see in the first three chapters of Genesis that apart from the Word of God, we don't have life, we don't have God's will, knowledge of His will, and we don't have the gospel. In order to have life and existence, in order to have a knowledge of God's will for how we should live, and in order to have the gospel of salvation, we must have this special revelation. These aren't things that you can get necessarily by looking at the stars. That's what's wrong with astrology. God's special revelation is relational. One of the things we notice when we start to look at the way God speaks to particular people is He doesn't just speak to give us information, to give us more knowledge. He speaks so that we can have a a relationship with Him. A Southern Baptist theologian, Millard Erickson, writes, The knowledge about was for the purpose of knowledge of. Information was to lead to acquaintance. 
And consequently, the information revealed was often quite selective. In other words, there's a lot of things God doesn't say. There's a lot of things that God doesn't tell us. But He tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. He speaks to us everything we need to know to have a proper relationship with Him. And that's the purpose of God's special revelation. It's given to help us know Him, to fear, love, and trust in Him above all things. On that note, we can also say that God's special revelation is personal in a way that natural revelation is not. When God speaks to particular people, when He speaks through a prophet, when He speaks through His Word, He brings people, He speaks in a personal way that He doesn't through the sun and the stars and the moon. He, he reveals His name to His people so that His people have the privilege of knowing the name of their covenant God, Yahweh. I remember when one of my seminary professors pointed out that it's not wrong to speak that name. The Jews became uncomfortable with it because they didn't want to use His name in vain, and so they overreacted by never using it. But he said, what a precious privilege we have that God has told His people His name. And we can relate to Him through His name, through the name of Jesus. That is a wonderful privilege. Now, we should be careful in how we use that name, but God has spoken to us in a personal way. He enters through special revelation into personal covenants with individuals and with His people. He, he speaks and He makes a personal relationship with them and commitments to them. That's a privilege. The psalmist can speak about personal experiences with God through His Word. The goal of Paul's life is to know Him and the power of His revelation. There is very little and maybe nothing that's revealed by way of special revelation that does not relate to God's redemptive work and His relationship with man. When God speaks, it has to do with how He's going to redeem us, whether that be the salvation of His people, the destruction of His enemies, and it's so that we can have a relationship with Him. Special revelation is given in human language and human categories of thought and action. I think it was John Calvin who said that in the pages of the Bible, God lisps to us as a mother speaks to her infants. You know how you know, we talk to our, uh, our two-year-old or our one-year-old? I don't talk to Elijah the way I'm talking to you. I condescend to him and I use words that maybe he can understand and I come down and I speak to him on the level of a one-year-old. In the Bible, God graciously condescends. His ways are not our ways. He is so high above us. He is utterly transcendent. But He makes Himself imminent. He comes near and He speaks in the Bible in human language so that we can know Him. That's grace when God condescends that way. He uses human language and He works through human experiences. He, he uses analogies of Himself that, uh, that we can understand. And He ultimately, the ultimate condescension of God, which means a, a bringing low, a coming down, was the Incarnation. He became man in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God did, so that we could see Him and hear Him and, and feel Him and touch Him and talk to Him. Well, how does special revelation occur? Basically, God speaks. And how does God speak? God speaks in decrees. 
We read in the Bible that God speaks, He declares for things to happen, He ordains things, and then they do. And it happens by His Word. Maybe this doesn't fit with special revelation, but it fits with God's words, Him speaking. One of the things that I think is amazing, as I mentioned, in Genesis 1, God says, Let there be light, and there was light. And He says, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, and it was so. God's Word is so powerful that He can speak to things that don't exist, and they happen. That's how powerful God's Word is. Light doesn't exist. He says, let there be light, and it is. God can command things that don't exist to come into existence. And in Hebrews 1, we read that He, Jesus Christ, upholds the universe by the Word of His power. So everything that exists came into existence by God's Word, and it stays in existence by God's Word. That is a powerful Word. God speaks to people. We have recorded instances of God speaking audibly, directly to people on earth. The Lord God commanded the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil you shall not eat. In Exodus 20, God spoke all these words saying, we know He spoke to Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then, in Mark chapter 9, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud and the voice said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. God spoke and people were able to hear Him. God doesn't just speak to people. He speaks through people. Very often in the history of God redeeming His people, He raises up prophets and apostles and He tells them to speak His words with their mouths on His behalf. In Jeremiah, the Lord put out His hand and touched Jeremiah's mouth and said to him, Behold, I have put My words in your mouth. Ezekiel said, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord said He would raise up a prophet for the people like Moses from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all I commanded him. So the Lord raises up people to speak his words on his behalf. And that person that he was referring to as raising up another prophet was Jesus Christ. Which re leads us to God speaks through the incarnation. In Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 2 we read, Long ago at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. It's an amazing thing. I mean, the people of Israel stood in awe of the prophets. They were in awe of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses. And God says through the author of Hebrews that God has spoken in an even greater way. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, He spoke through the prophets. But, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. That's why John calls Him the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is called the Word because He is the supreme revelation of God the Father. When you see Jesus Christ, or when you read about Him in the pages of Scripture, you see the perfect image of God. 
You see the character of God on perfect display. You see God's will for man perfectly communicated in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. So when you look at Him, you see the Father. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. John loves to refer to Jesus as the Word. And in Revelation 19, he pictures Jesus as the one who is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. John loved to emphasize in Revelation and in his Gospel that Jesus is God communicating himself to us in the flesh. This is the ultimate special revelation. Of course, one of the things you might ask then is, how do we learn about God through Jesus? He has ascended into heaven. Jesus is bodily at the right hand of the Father. He'll always have His body. And until He comes again, we can't see Him. We can't audibly hear Him. We can't physically touch Him. We can't ask Him questions. We can't do prayer. But He's not here physically. He's here through His Holy Spirit. But He's not here physically. So how do we have access to this ultimate revelation of the Father. Well, that's through the pages of Scripture where we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, finally, we see that God speaks in the Scripture. Scripture is a word that basically means writing. The writing, that's what Scripture means. And it's God's written word. He has revealed Himself to particular people and He has inspired them to write down exactly the words that He wants written down And we'll look at that probably next week or the week to follow. We'll be looking at the doctrine of the Bible in particular and why it's inspired and infallible and without error and authoritative and clear and all those great things that the Bible is. But God frequently put His Word down in written form. In Exodus 31, with God's own finger, He wrote on tablets of stone that He gave to Moses. In Deuteronomy 31... Uh, Moses finished writing the words of the law in a book to the very end. And Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. In Joshua, we read that Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. In Isaiah 30, the Lord commands Isaiah to go and write in a book and on a tablet that it can be a witness forever, God's Word. In Jeremiah 30, the Lord commands Jeremiah to write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says of his own writings in 1 Corinthians 14, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul saw the very letters that he was writing as the commands of Jesus Christ. And so in the pages of Scripture, we'll look at this more next week, but we have the Word of God written down for us to read and understand and know God. And I want us to end by focusing on the benefits of the written Word. I don't want to diminish the importance of God speaking through the lips of prophets, 
I don't want to diminish the importance of God speaking with an audible voice from heaven. But I think it's important for us to consider what wisdom God showed when He had His Word written down in the pages of Scripture. Scripture, God's Word can be preserved through oral communication. When I, I think that's probably how uh, the, the history that's recorded in Genesis was passed along until Moses recorded it. It was probably by memory and oral communication from one generation to another. When I studied, uh, I was a communication major in college, and there are places they've found, uh, cultures, where they don't have a written language, and they memorize huge amounts of history, word for word, comparable to the Torah. And uh, they've been able to go through several generations of these cultures and see that it's passed along without error. I mean, the human mind is capable of that. And so, especially if the Holy Spirit wants to keep truth communicated, He is able to do that. If He can do that through pagans, He can do it through His people. But I think it's wise, I think God is wise, that He has chosen to write down His Word. Imagine what would happen tonight if God was to speak audibly and say He was to go on speaking for a few hours and speak to us information comparable to the book of Romans. And imagine that we came back in three months to talk about what God had said to us. What would happen? I mean, apart from a miraculous intervention of God, what would happen? You ever played the game telephone? I mean, you know what happens with a telephone prayer chain? You, you tell your friend that um, my muffler's not working, and could you pray that God would send $100 so I can get it fixed? And three hours later, you got people calling you saying, Man, I didn't know you had an appendectomy. I am so sorry. Can we bring some food over? I mean, that's what happens when we try to communicate things. You know, you, you have a hangnail, and the next thing you know, you're dying. And the church is, you know preparing a funeral supper for you. Um, there would be strong possibilities that we would come and we would disagree about what God had spoken, about what God had said audibly. And if we did recall it differently, if one person said, stood up and said, God said this, and the next person stood up and said, no, 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 God said this, you got it wrong, where would we go to find out who's right? We wouldn't have any place to go. We would have to ask God to speak aloud again, every time. And if you wanted to study that, you'd either have to have it perfectly memorized or God would have to audibly speak every time you wanted to study what He was saying. That's not so if God chooses to inscripturate, to write down His Word. It is accurately and permanently preserved. And so we can resolve disagreements by going back to what God has written down through inspired authors. We can... Study it by going back and, and repeatedly reading over it. And anybody can have access to it as long as they can read the language that it's been translated into. As long as it's been translated accurately. The written word is profitable to study. As we've already read, the man that is blessed is the one who delights in God's written word, his law, and meditates on it day and night. In Joshua 1.8 we read, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And in 2 Timothy 3, we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 
And there are at least three ways that it is necessary for us to have, why it is necessary to have the written Scripture. First of all, Scripture is necessary for knowledge of the Gospel. For knowledge of the Gospel. We talked about this uh, when we looked at natural revelation, about how you cannot be saved by looking at creation. You are only saved, as Paul says in Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That's where faith comes from, when you hear the Word. Now, it can be preached audibly, but what is preached is the written Word. Faith comes through hearing this, through reading this. That's why it's so important that we support people, that organizations like Wycliffe, that give their time to raising up Bible translators, to go to places that don't have written languages, to study the culture for three, the, the people for three years, figure out their language, write it down, teach them to read their own language, and then they translate the Bible into it so the people can read it. That is really important work because people need to hear the Word of Christ to be saved. It's also why in our evangelistic efforts, we need to keep the Scripture at the forefront. That's why it's good to pass out Bibles. That's why it's good to share, to have evangelistic Bible studies. That's why it's good to preach the Word and keep that central. Because faith doesn't come through activities. It comes through the Word of Christ. Now, we can use a host of activities to get people to a place where they can hear the Word. But we need to give them the Word if they are going to have a knowledge of the Gospel. A second thing Scripture is necessary for is for maintaining spiritual life. Even our Lord Jesus answered Satan by saying, It is written, man shall not... It is written, get that, it is written. The way he fought Satan was what the written Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. He shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here is where we have continual access to the words that come from God's mouth. And if we don't go to these words... We are neglecting our bread. And we are neglecting the spiritual life of our soul and starving it. We read in Deuteronomy 32, I love this passage, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. God said that His word that He had Moses write down was not an empty word. It was their very life. Life comes from His word. In 1 Peter 2.2, 2, Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And I didn't read another passage I was thinking of from First Peter this morning about being born again. But the Lord says, through Peter, in First Peter 1.23, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Your rebirth comes through God's Word. His Spirit applies the work of the Word Jesus Christ that is given to us through the written Word of Scripture, which is living and active. It's where life comes from. To neglect the Bible 
is to neglect spiritual life. And that's why to be a healthy church where there is spiritual life, we need to keep the study and preaching of the Word of God at the center. Because if we get away from it, we will die. And we will wither up and blow away in the wind. And finally, written Scripture is necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. Now, it's not to say that if God speaks today and says, Thou shalt from the clouds, that you can't be certain that it's Him, though you'd have to ask the question, how do I know it's the voice of God? And we have the Scripture to compare it against. Wayne Grudem writes, If there were no written word of God, we could not gain certainty about God's will through other means, such as conscience, advice from others, internal witness of the Holy Spirit, changed circumstances, and the use of sanctified reasoning and common sense. Now, what does he mean by that? What do you do when someone comes to you and they say, the Holy Spirit has clearly told me to do this? How do you know? How do you weigh that? Especially if it seems questionable. One of the things that I am consistently astonished by is how many times people try to make, try to make significant decisions for their life and sometimes try to make spiritual decisions apart from the written Word of God. God has, God has said in, in 1 Timothy that the Scripture is sufficient to make the man of God competent and equipped for every good work. Let me read that again. That you may be a competent, equipped for every good work. How many good works are we competent and equipped for through the Scripture? Every good work. If there is any good work that God is calling you to do, any good work, you can be competent and equipped to do it through the Scripture. I mean, that, just think about that. How many times do we say, I don't know what to do, but we don't go to the Word of God? God has given us everything in His Word necessary to be competent and equipped for every good work. Everything we need for life and godliness is given to us in the Word of God. And so we should pray that the Spirit would give us wisdom and go to God's Word and study its precepts, study its principles. God's Word tells us how to think and speak and act. And we can apply those things to how we live. Moses says, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. One of the, one of the verses that I love in the Bible is Psalm 119, verse 1. Hebrew poetry off, op, often operates in a stereotype fashion. You know how when you have your stereos, you can, uh, there's a different thing that comes out of the right speaker than comes out of the left speaker, and together you get the complete sound. In Hebrew poetry, there's often parallel lines, and when you put them together, like a right and a left speaker, you get the whole sound, you get the whole picture. And Psalm 119 verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. So the person whose way is blameless, without any blame, is blessed. What's the second half of that verse say? What's the parallel? Who is blameless? Who walk in the law of the Lord. If you walk in God's law, then you are blameless. In God's law, 
is written down for us in His Word. So as long as you are walking according to the written Word of God, you are blameless. And so when you go to buy a car and you say, I have my mind, you know, I believe that I should buy a Ford Taurus. No comments from Chevy fans. And you're in the parking lot of the dealer and you say, boy, I just don't know if God wants me to buy a green Taurus or a red Taurus. So I need to pray for some leading from the Lord. Or I don't know whether I should wear this morning white socks or black socks. I need to pray for some leading of the Lord. If you walk in the law of the Lord, you are blameless. So when you go to buy a car, God's Word gives principles about how to spend your money. You need to do things like be a good steward. You need to be generous to the poor and the needy. You need to be modest. You need to store up your treasures in heaven. And on and on. And you say, how would God have me spend money? Is the way I'm buying this car in accord with the Word of God? And if so, you're blameless. Buy whatever color you want to. As long as it's within the Word of God. St. Augustine once said, Love God and do as you please. And some people have thought that means that he's saying just go live in sin as long as you have warm fuzzies for God. When he says love God and do as you please, he says the Word of God tells us how to love God. And if you are acting in a way that is love for God according to His Word, you can, you can act according to your desires. God gave you a mind. He gave you a heart. He gave you desires. He made you able to think. And if you are not in disobedience to His Word, stewardship of your gifts, so on and so forth, love God and do as you please. 1 John 5.3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. If you're walking in obedience to the Word of the Lord, if you're keeping His commandments, you're loving God and free to live. We are blessed if we take our counsel from the Scripture, finally. As I've read for you, David writes, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law he meditates day and night. And so it's appropriate, I think, for us to be more certain of what we find in Scripture than anywhere else. Getting back to my question, what if someone comes to us and says, the Holy Spirit has clearly revealed to me... Uh, this happens at, at seminary. I had, a, I had a friend that was the director of admissions, and they would get applications um, from women that say on there, I'm coming to seminary because the Holy Spirit has led me to be a pastor. And the Word of God says that uh, the, the pastorate is limited to men qualified by the Scripture alone. How do you answer that person who says, the Holy Spirit has called me to do this? And you say the Word of God goes otherwise. If a person has a leading from, quote-unquote, the Holy Spirit, and it goes against the Spirit-inspired Word of God, then one of four things is true. First of all, they could be lying. And sometimes I wonder, if we don't, use the expression, I have been led to, as an excuse for our laziness to do the hard work of studying the Scripture, or for an excuse to do what we really want to do. They could be lying. Second, they could be imagining things. Third, they could have heard from God, but heard wrong. They've changed what He said. Or fourth, they heard correctly, but it was not God that was speaking to them. And so we need to hold ourselves 
to what God has clearly revealed to us in His Scripture. Because God is not two-faced. He will not lead us to do what His Word says we ought not to do. God speaks the truth and He is consistent. So I would just encourage you to ask God to give you the fullness of His Spirit and to open up His Word every day and to go there with confidence and ask Him to teach you how to live in a way that pleases Him. And you will be blessed for it and able to live according to His will, competent and equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray where I've said anything that is confusing, that You would help to clarify it. If I've said anything that is wrong, that You would correct us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for speaking to us. You are such a gracious God who stoops low to love His people. Thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.